ever wondered what multimillionaires do differently than the average person? How do they think? What habits do they have? What exactly did they do to become so financially successful? And that's why I'm so excited to have today's guest. He's actually one of my clients. And you probably hear me talk a lot about how I train these CEOs of very successful companies. Well, now you're going to get to listen to an interview with one. What I really love about today's guest, John Gunsey, is that you probably hear a lot about guys like Bernie Madoff in the news, the evil one percenters, or guys like Dan Bilzerian. But there's plenty of really cool people who are making millions of dollars and they're not one of those jackasses and they're not evil people who are trying to get all the the money and not pay people and trying to, you know, push down society so they can stay at the top. John's a really good dude. I train him. I spend time with him. I spend time with his wife. I train both of them and they give a lot of money to charity, but he's in a business that you probably, you just don't hear about yet. He's very financially successful. And I would say he's successful in all areas of his life because he makes it a point to exercise and to talk a little bit about him. He is the chairman and chief executive officer of response team one, which has become the second largest disaster restoration company in the U S He's also the founder and a partner of Gunsey and Company, a private investment firm that he started in 2008. He's had such a great career. He began his private equity career in 1988 as a founder and president of Heller Equity Capital Corporation. He's also worked for Allstate Insurance Company as a managing director And he's done a ton of different things. And I'm not going to tell you his entire story or all the lessons that you're going to learn in the intro, because that's what you're going to hear in the interview, but you're going to hear his perspective. And I want you to listen closely. Even if you disagree with some of what John says, there's gold in there because he's not one of these people, like I said, one of these clowns who are making a big deal on social media or perhaps in the mainstream media. He's a guy who's very smart, very strategic, very hardworking to create what he's created for himself. And you're going to hear about his story, how he created this level of financial success for himself, what habits he has, and how he thinks about things. And there's gold in that because I'll tell you, I've learned a ton from spending time with guys like John. And unlike other people that I have on the show who come on to promote their book, their service, their product, their course, etc., which by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, especially if it's a good course, product, service. But John's here because I asked him to be here. And he's a super busy guy, incredibly busy guy, but he was cool enough to come on and share some of his insight. So this is just a pure gift from him to you and to me as well. So please listen, learn, enjoy the interview with my client, John Gunsey. John Gunsey, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast. Thanks, Ted. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And I did an intro at the beginning talking a little bit about you and what you do. 
and our relationship together because we've been training with each other for a while. But in your own words, can you talk a little bit about what you do professionally? I am basically an investor. I've been investing in private companies for the last 30 years or so. And most recently, I've been more focused in my investment activities in a particular company that my business partner and I are building. So for the last six years, I've been chairman and CEO and day-to-day manager of an operating business as well. Yeah. And that business made the Inc. 500 two years in a row. So John, can you talk a little bit about some of what you accomplished? Because you've gotten a few awards. You were on the Inc. 500 list. Can you talk a little bit about uh, those accolades? Sure. Well, so briefly, we started this company in 2009, and it's a business that's in the disaster uh, restoration industry, which means if a fire or a flood or some other damage occurs to your property, either uh, residential or commercial or institutional for that matter, we'll come in and first clean up the mess, and then secondly, put things back together at least as good as they were before. So we we thought we could build a nice size business in this industry and starting a little less than six years ago have built what's now the second largest company in a pretty big industry. So part of what's happened, the, the result of that is we have made the Inc. 500 the last two years. In the most recent year, while the Inc. 500 measures the pace of growth of companies, another interesting aspect of it from my perspective is the size of the company. And it's, it's harder to be on that list of fast-growing companies if you're big. And this year, our company, Response Team 1, was the 10th largest company on the Inc. 500. So that's a big accomplishment, I think, for us and for all the people associated with the company. Yeah, no, that's very cool. And you have a great backstory about how you got started into all this because you did not come from a wealthy family. You built this up step by step. You have an MBA from the University of Chicago. You have the street cred, you have the academic credentials, and you've obviously put in the hard work. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew up and what led to you becoming an entrepreneur at such a young age? Because you and I, we've talked a bit and you said, you know what you wanted to do when you were in college. Yeah, it's hard to tell how all of the factors came together to lead to me doing what I've decided to do. But I grew up you know, very comfortably, but not with a ton of money. My dad was a senior management guy at a big utility, a gas and electric utility in Michigan. And so he always had a ton of responsibility, but working for a utility is kind of like working for the government. It's stable, you have lots of responsibility, you don't get paid a ton of money. But I had my dad as as a figure to follow from a pretty early age, because he was always a leader, and I wanted to be the same thing. But we moved around a lot when I was a kid. I think by the time I started college, it was the eighth school that I went to. And I wasn't a very good student, but for some reason did very well in college. I met one of my professors in college 
helped me figure out some of the early steps to doing what I've done. He encouraged me to move to Chicago. I was living in Michigan at the time and to enroll at the University of Chicago, which at the time was one of the top three MBA programs in the country. It's probably still about in that category, top three, top five. So the combination of doing pretty well in college and doing well in in graduate school was helpful to me. But then I started as a started working as a trainee in a bank in Chicago, got pretty bored by that after a couple of years and was recruited with another guy who was just a year older than me to create a startup business in the communication space. And that kind of entrepreneurial experience really formed what I did for the next 30 years and counting. Yeah. So your dad being a leader and being a manager, not only did you seem to get those qualities from him, but also see, hey, this guy, he's he's worked really hard and became a manager of, of this company, but you wanted something more. And then that taste of entrepreneurship with the telecommunication, that's the beeper company you were telling me about, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it, that's... D- dating myself. Oh, yeah. You know, I had a beeper too, John. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... So it's really interesting. That was the the turning point where you decided, you know what? I don't want to be like a manager like my dad. I don't want to work for anybody else. That's when you decided you wanted to become an entrepreneur? Well, in phases. That was kind of a trial entrepreneurial run because I had I had the backing of a very big company. And so I got to do all the entrepreneurial things that one does when they're starting a business, but I didn't really have the financial risk that you typically have. And I've kind of moved in and out of uh, the risk portion of entrepreneurialism over the last, gosh, 30 years now. In some cases, I didn't need to take much risk. In others, I didn't need to take a lot of risk. But the, the common theme was more not having a boss who I had any real day-to-day accountability to. And that was pretty much true for the rest of my career. Even though a bunch of my career was spent working for big companies, the circumstances were such that I was doing something almost always outside the normal sphere of that company. So there weren't really people working there who could manage what I was doing because they didn't understand the business. And then the last 15 years or so, has been completely entrepreneurial where it was both my time and my capital at risk, which has been the most enjoyable of the things I've done. Yeah. You know, just listening to that, it's very cool. And you said in that time, you didn't have to take a lot of risk. You had the backing of a big company. And we're living in a time right now where you don't have to take very much risk at all in this this whole online space. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that eventually. But first, I want to start with, because I, I've talked to, literally spoken to over the phone or over Skype, many of the guys who listen to this show, some of them are working in jobs, they're making a good salary, but they want to do something different. They want to do something more entrepreneurial. And there's also guys who are just coming out of school and they're not sure what to do. Maybe the idea of going and working for someone doesn't sound that great, but starting a business, I mean, that's a hard leap to make if you don't have 
some solid skills and perhaps some light, some guidance and leadership. So what would you say to anybody who, what are the characteristics and what would you say, what advice would you give to anybody who wanted to make that leap into entrepreneurship? You know, I think it's two broad categories. I think one is figuring out what you're excited about. And the second is bringing some particular skills to the table. And so if you take the second one first, and this is a very broad generalization, but I would generally say in today's world that two things that that anybody aspiring to be in business, if, honestly, as an entrepreneur or not as an entrepreneur, two things that I think are important to do are basically about learning a language. And I think the two languages that it's important for people to learn are, this may sound boring, accounting. I think just take a couple accounting classes to kind of understand how the numbers work because it truly is on a broad scale the language of business. Mm. I think the second thing I would do, and I think think we're going to begin to see this, we're already beginning to see it in some schools. I think you should learn how to code, how to write code. And I don't know how to do that. But if I were in my 20s, I would definitely know how to do it. Because I think as our world evolves, I think as the economy evolves, that will increasingly be a language just like English or Spanish or French or accounting is today. And people who can communicate in that fashion, I think will have a huge advantage over those who can't. And you can see it in some schools now. The the school my daughter is going to begins to teach kids how to write code in grade school. And I think that's a really important thing. So those are two skills I would develop kind of completely separate of what it is you want to do. And then I think what what one wants to do to really be successful has to be about something you enjoy. And so I think I think getting a job, working for somebody else, learning some skills, studying stuff, whether it's in school or outside of school, is is an important part at the front end of figuring out you know how to be, particularly how to be an entrepreneur. I think it's important from a career perspective in general, but especially being an entrepreneur. Because if you're going to take the risk and if you're going to put in the effort that's required to be successful, you got to really enjoy it because it's a lot of work. It's hard. There are ups and downs and you got to really want it. And if you're not doing something that you really enjoy and that you you know feel excited about, it's going to be tough to sustain the commitment to what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's such great advice. You got to have the passion to stay committed or else you're just not going to be willing to do the work involved. That's a great one. The accounting that you said it sounded boring, but this is about doing what it takes, not about what you wish it took, right? Yeah, yeah. And the coding. Yeah, I mean, I happen to like that stuff, but you know, I haven't had to take an accounting class for 35 years or so. But to me, as I got into business, that made everything clear. It was a very organized way to understand 
and to measure the success of what's working and what's not working. Today's economy, particularly the internet economy, it's a little, it's driven by somewhat different metrics and the accounting stuff may not be quite as important there, but I think the coding is even more so important in that space. Yeah. And I'd love to tackle both of those things in a second, but first I want to address the the passion comment you made because there are a lot of people who are passionate about playing ice hockey or playing video games or, you know, doing something that maybe the, the business idea there is not immediately vis- visible. What yeah. would you say to a person to maybe they have some passion, but where do you find the sweet spot between what you're passionate about and something that has the potential to make you money? I think it's a couple of things. I think you either have to identify some unmet need and you know, you think about the big names, the huge successes of the last five or 10 years, particularly in Silicon Valley or, or those types of companies. And generally, those are businesses that have met some unmet need. And half the time, we didn't even know we needed it. We just, you know, the, the people who've figured out the businesses figured out that there was an, an unrealized as well as unmet need. So I, I think that's one approach to it. I think another, and this is probably more accessible for more people, is looking at businesses, particularly you know, uh, industries that are pretty good size, and watching how the companies that are in those industries operate, how they deal, most importantly, how they deal with their customers, and figuring out whether you have an idea on how they could do it better. And that takes, it's a different kind of leap than just figuring something out of whole cloth that nobody else has ever thought of before. It's really more incremental rather than an evolutionary rather than revolutionary. But I think there's an important place in, you know, in our economy and in the world economy for both of those things. Now, your business, your current business uh, is the second one or is it it the first? No, it's very much the second one. Yeah. So there's potential to meet an unmet need or to build on something that a company is already doing successfully, just make it better, especially with regards to the way they serve their customers. Yeah, yeah. that's that's awesome. I mean, this may seem rudimentary for you, John, but for anyone trying to make that leap into, okay, thinking like a businessman. I'm really enjoying this uh, conversation a lot Good. because that's something that I'm trying to, to do as well. You know, you mentioned earlier that getting that experience working in a company that's already has a, a systems and structures in place to see how it works. I've never had that opportunity. I've always just been on my own since I was 22 in the personal training business. And I feel like if I would have had that, that guidance and, or at least something to emulate, maybe things, maybe I'd be in a different place right now. Not good or bad, but just important for anyone listening out there. Yeah, I found it helpful. I, I remember really early in my career working for a big bank and I didn't know that I didn't know some of the really basic stuff, like just how you conduct yourself and 
you know, what you do at the office versus what you do outside of the office. Kind of an odd story to remember. It's, this was like, gosh, it was almost 40 years ago. But I remember I was working at a place where the senior guys often came in and had a cup of coffee and read the newspaper at their desk in the morning. And so I started doing that. And then after about a week, one of the senior guys came over and said, look, John, I can do this, but you can't do this at, you know, age 22. And I still remember the, the, the situation. And it was, I was embarrassed, but it kind of put into context things like hierarchy and being aware of what's going on around you and who's doing what and, you know, how you should present yourself, how you show up in the morning, just really basic stuff. But I found it very helpful. Yeah, that's critical, critical advice. So if you're listening right now and you happen to be working in a job and you're thinking about how to get out of it because you'd rather do something on your own and be your own boss, always look at what you could learn from the place where you're currently working at. So you get those lessons because obviously if you're working at a place that's been around for a while, it's, it's already proven itself in the market. It's successful. And John, I'd like to transition now. You mentioned accounting and you actually have a degree in that or focus in that with your academic studies. There's just some huge misconceptions out there about the way money works, the way businesses work. In fact, just brought up briefly a girl who was uh, on, she was on Fox News with Neil Cavuto and she was basically, she wanted college debt to be forgiven and she's like leading a million student march on Washington, I guess trying to copy like the civil rights, what happened in the civil rights era, but it's very different, right? And also I saw a guy who is petitioning for a $15 minimum wage. And he was saying, listen, I serve my country. I, I fought in Iraq. And now I, I work at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm making the minimum wage. It should be $15 an hour. What myths and misconceptions do you think a person who is making statements like that what misconceptions do they have about business, about the economy, about the way money works that people who are successful, economically successful, don't have? Well, I think it's, it's almost more of a philosophical topic. It's, you know, basically, if you look at the global economy or even if you look at the U.S. economy, it's essentially a zero-sum game. And if someone wants to receive, believes they should receive something for doing nothing or, or more than what the market, you know, the free market would value it at, then it's got to come out of some, somebody else's pocket. And, and, and if it goes through our, our federal or state government, there's this expensive toll of inefficiency and bureaucracy that gets taken out of that transfer payment as it goes from one person's pocket to another, which makes it even more expensive. But I think fundamentally, as I look at, at those things, the question that I think one should ask is, why should somebody else pay for this person? And in some cases, it's completely legitimate. You know, we have a, a social security system, we've got insurance programs, we've got lots of government programs to take care of people 
in need or take care of people who are disadvantaged in one way or another. And I'm a supporter of much of those programs, but I think it becomes a matter of degree. And the money doesn't just kind of appear from nowhere. It's got to be taken out of somebody's pocket. And I think as you're figuring out who should get what, it, it's fair to ask out of whose pocket should that come and why. And that framework leads to lots of different points of view, but that's just kind of the real simple math of it. And, you know, I, I think each person has to form their own opinion as to what it's important to have somebody else pay for of theirs. Yeah, and, and that's a great answer, but uh, I must not have asked it correctly because I think I was asking a less philosophical question. Let me try again. So what okay. I was saying is like, like there's a, a saying that I love, like the market doesn't lie, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. if you're like, man, I got this great product, but nobody's buying it, or they say it's great, but they're not going to pay me what I'm asking. What misconceptions, like more about the, the actual nuts and bolts about, you know, the exchange of value? Am I making sense there? Yeah, I think it isn't always true, but it's mostly true that the market will tell you what something's worth, including you personally. And not as a human being, but as a, you know, as a, a creator of economic value. And right. so all of the things that we do to interfere with what the market values or how the market values a person's work or a product creates a level of, of inefficiency it, not necessarily a bad one, but it's a it's changing that balance of the market telling us what something's worth. Now, there I think there are some appropriate instances where that makes sense to do, but fundamentally that's what's going on. Anytime there is a is a a government imposed mandate, whether it's Obamacare or the minimum wage, it's basically the government on behalf of the population making a decision that they want the world to work in something other than the way a fair market economy operates. Interesting. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that more carefully and think about that for a while. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people complain to take a different example. A lot of people complain like, oh, athletes are paid millions of dollars and all they do are these young kids who get out, they, they throw a ball around and put it through a hoop or charge it down the, the end of a, a field for a touchdown, but teachers aren't paid enough. And while in a certain way that may seem unfair, but it's like people are kind of driving that by showing up to games and buying tickets and buying merchandise and also watching it on TV. And, yep. you know, so I guess I was just trying to promote like a more, just being a little less emotionally attached to things and looking at the why, why is it that those guys are getting paid so much versus, you know, a teacher when you think a teacher should get paid more? Do you have any thoughts on that? It's the old actions speak louder than words, right? We all pay for our cable or we pay for the NFL red zone package or the NBA game every night of the week during the season. And media revenues are far and away the largest source of income for both professional and college sports. 
And that's what drives the profitability of franchises. It's what drives what players get paid, what coaches get paid. It drives much of the financial resources of major universities as well. And, you know, we as Americans pay for that. And on the other hand, I do very strongly believe that teachers should be paid a lot more than they are. But fundamentally, we elect the politicians who set the property taxes, which in most states are what drive the budget that allow teachers to get paid. And people scream about their property taxes and there's not enough money going into the state coffers to, among other things, pay teachers. And that one's a little less direct, so it's kind of harder to follow. But I would much prefer that there be a lot more money available to teachers and a much different system of teaching our children. Yeah, yeah. I hope anyone listening to this conversation and listening to you, John, with all your knowledge and experience and has gotten at least, okay, I need to start thinking about things a bit differently. Don't get sucked up. What I'm trying to do on this podcast is trying to get people away from the emotional charge ideas and start to look at things more objectively and try to understand why things work instead of getting caught up in causes that really don't help. You know, we have to understand the nuts and bolts of the machines that are at work here and, and, you know, the economy and like you were talking about taxation, property taxes and what's going on. So thanks for at least shedding some light on that subject and explaining it a bit more so, so anyone listening can get a better idea of, you know, what's going on in terms of the processes involved. So John, let's talk a little bit about what your advice would be for anyone looking in to get into some type of business now. You've already talked about learning two different languages, the accounting and learning how to code and definitely being passionate about what you pursue or else you won't put in the work and either identifying some unmet need or perhaps modeling an already successful business and finding a way to do it competitively. But where's the opportunity now that you see in our current environment, in our world? Oh man, it's everywhere. I think for all of the challenges that we face, which I think we're much more aware of because of the ubiquitous nature of, of immediate media coverage, I think in spite of all that, we're at a moment in history when um, the ability to gain knowledge is greater by far than it ever has been. And I think that ability, that access to information and that ability to gain knowledge gives us so many things that we can do. So the way I look at things, I don't really kind of sit myself down and think of what's the next great idea that I could pursue. I'm personally much more focused on taking things that I understand how to do and applying them to different situations where I think I can gain an advantage. So I'm not, I'm probably not a very good source for what do you do, but I, I think the environment is so rich with information that if you can become self-aware, understand what you're personally good at and understand what you're personally excited about, that will lead 
uh, one down a path where you can figure out the answer to that question. So to me, again, it's a little bit philosophical, but equip yourself with the skills, keep an open mind and create an organized process of pursuing stuff that catches your interest and see where that leads you. And I think if you do it in a, a systematic and a disciplined fashion, most people who really, really want to do something will figure out what to do. I love that advice because I'm a product of that advice. And I think at least this is what you kind of see from some people who are talking about ideas. They're like trying to find the next big thing. They're trying to do that, identify some unmet need or maybe unrealized need. And that's so hard to do. You got to, I don't know, you got to be a, a Steve Jobs or, or someone like that to, to come up with an idea that's like, whoa, or an Elon Musk. And yeah. what you're talking about is, hey, put your head down, start grinding away, figure out what you're good at, become self-aware, follow your passions, <laughs> develop skills in a methodical way. And that path, if you stay on it long enough and keep improving and strive for excellence and strive to grow, and you will find the answer. You will go down some paths. That also brings us up to the idea that entrepreneurship like someone may look at you and look at your successes and some of the other people that I train as well. You're less flashy when it comes to your choice of cars, but you know, I've told you and I've talked about the podcast about some of my other clients. My one of my clients just took me for a ride in his new 458 Spider and you know, and he's got a Ferrari collection. Someone may look at that and say, oh man, you know, you obviously, you just made it. Like you went from a straight line at the bottom because he's a self-made guy like you. A straight line at the bottom to the top and just everything was easy along the way. Were there some failures along the way or some learning lessons really? Can you talk a little bit about maybe a story where you really felt like, man, this is some hard stuff, you know, this this business and and your story of overcoming it? I mean, lots of them. Probably for me, and this is, you know, it's personal and uh, financial, but the biggest hurdle was I, I got divorced about 15 years ago and did so at a time when the market was really, really strong. So I had a very expensive divorce followed by an economic crash. So that was a, that was a tough combination to work through. But I've also kind of aside from that major life event had I've invested in something like 150 companies over the last 35 years. And I've had lots of those that I shouldn't have done or that I should have done. And then I didn't do a great job uh, managing them once I made the investment. So lots of examples. Probably the biggest one was having acquired a collection of uh, what turned out to be pretty large new construction building contractors in the early 2000s and having huge success until the housing market crashed in 2007 and then trying to manage uh, what had become big businesses in a market where the available revenues to them were shrinking you know, in the course of 18 months by 80 or 90 percent. And uh, that was tough. Wow. So I learned a lot of lessons about a whole bunch of things. But, you know, managing in difficult, some would say crisis moments, 
very, very tough. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't do well on every single investment, but overall we came out of it, uh, just fine, but not easily. So do you know any entrepreneurs who are successful at your level or above or, or, or below that went from a straight line of just, okay, here I am starting with, you know, maybe a few connections, maybe a couple bucks in my pocket, maybe a degree, then just going straight up and hitting the top to wherever they are now? You know, not a lot. I think there are a few of those cases, um, particularly in the technology world. If you, you know, if you look at the, what are now called unicorns, startup companies that get to a billion dollar valuation very quickly. In many cases, the, the people running those businesses are 23, 24 years old. They haven't had time to screw stuff up. So <laughs> at, least, at least at a point in time, they have an unblemished record of success. And in, in some of those cases, that'll continue, you know, for the rest of their lives. Bill Gates is probably a good example of somebody for whom that's true. But it's a really, really small percentage of people who have that uh, talent and that good fortune. Hence the term unicorns. Yeah, exactly. So unless you have a horn, a single horn growing out of your head, just uh, forget about that and get yourself working hard and, and figuring things out along the way. Yeah, no, great advice. And, and thanks for sharing the stories about your divorce and, and the businesses that you invested in that didn't go so well. It brings me to what we do together. I'm curious how fitness plays into your role as a CEO. I would say the the kind of interrelated is, is, as I've learned from you, Ted, but the combination of becoming stronger, mitigating stress is an important aspect of what it lets me do my job as well as I'm capable of doing it. And, and I get that from the stuff that you and I do together on the training front. So, I mean, there's, there are other reasons, you know, that I like to do it, but those are the two things I think that that drive the drive my performance as a CEO. It's 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 important to be to be strong and to have endurance. There's enough stress in pretty much any CEO's job that anything you can do to reduce or to mitigate that stress will make you a better performer as well. Yeah, great answer. And of course, when you're talking about me and giving me praise, and I would like you to give me a little bit of a testimonial here. So, because I talk a lot about the people I train and the results I get, but even before we do that, was there a time? Because I know you trained with someone before me. Was there a time where you weren't exercising and you were working hard and you felt you felt the difference? Oh, for sure. I basically worked at least a hundred hours a week from age. 18 till I was in my mid 40s. And while I was a, a decent athlete, I didn't spend much time on fitness or on athletics during most of that period. So it was a very long time. And then I got pretty fit in my late 40s and early 50s. And, uh, and I'd say for most of the last six years since we started this company that um, we talked about earlier, I haven't kept myself in great shape. But and and I could feel the difference in my concentration, in my demeanor, 
so I think broadly working out and getting in better shape has been very helpful to, to my family as well as my business since you and I have been working together for the last year in particular. And I think specifically the way you and I work together, the focus on a fitness that is more sustainable and it isn't just about focusing on particular muscle groups, but building overall strength, overall endurance, flexibility, all of those, and pairing that with an intelligent approach to nutrition, those are things that are important to me. They're, they've been more, uh, the results have been greater and more valuable to me than I expected them to be. And that continues. It's why I'm, I'm as persistent about it as I am. And it definitely is important for business, but it's even more important just for life and longevity. And as you know, I've got a substantially younger wife and a very young daughter in addition to a couple of, uh, of older kids. And it's important to me that I'm, I'm healthy and vigorous for another few decades. So that's a very important piece of why I'm doing with you what, what, what you've been so helpful to me to do. Yeah, awesome. And I, I do appreciate that. And I think that's important for anyone to hear who maybe doesn't identify themselves as a fitness person, because the way I hear you talk and my other clients talk, you're a, you're a family man. You're a businessman. You're not a gym rat or a, a fitness buff or anything like that, yet you've right. been able to do these things because you see the value, you feel the results. I'm curious, why did you and Janelle, Janelle, I'd love to have on here because she has a really interesting story. Your wife, Janelle, she did not want to train with me at first. Uh, I'll have <laughs> to get her on here and tell that story because it's, it's, it's pretty funny. But why did you guys choose to train with me over some of the other great trainers in Miami Beach? I think the first thing was just having observed you, your attitude was a lot more even keeled, less of kind of the Marine Sergeant approach than we sometimes see. <laughs> That's um, hilarious. So, so that was the starting point. But I think since we started working together, the, the philosophy and particularly what you're doing most recently with the full body workouts and the body weight as opposed to using lots of machines and devices, it makes sense to me. It makes kind of intuitive as well as physiological sense to me. And, and I enjoy spending time with you. You know, I look forward together as often as we do. I'm always tired by the time we're done, but invigorated and it, it's always enjoyable. And I think, so I kind of led that. And then Janelle began to, she saw the same thing I did in terms of your demeanor, but she saw the results that you and I were getting. And that's what led her to decide to work with you, Ted, because I mean, I don't know what I'm repeating, but she saw your demeanor from the outset. But when she started to see the results that I was getting by working with you, that's what led her to want to start working with you. And, and she does say, I know she said this to you, like I think lots of women, she's very particular about what she's trying to accomplish. And she found, has found and continues to find that you listened to exactly what she was trying to do and you created a program that accomplishes and it's done an awesome job accomplishing what she wanted to do with her body and she's worked with other trainers both men and women who uh, haven't been very good listeners and so i think you've got you have a long-term client and janelle as well 
Awesome. No, I'm glad to hear that. And I absolutely enjoy my time with you. I love asking you questions. And, you know, I, I learn from you as much as you learn from me. And it's always a pleasure when, when that happens, you know, in a training relationship. And yeah. what's important if, for you listening right now is that John said it was first my demeanor and then second that I listened with, with Giselle. So I could have been the most knowledgeable trainer in the world, have all the degrees, all the experience. But if I had that Marine kind of aggressive, douchey attitude, really, you guys might not have uh, signed up with me. A really important learning lesson. I, I wanted to make sure everyone heard that because, man, you know, if you're going to spend time with somebody, whether it's hiring them as your employee or entering into like some type of situation where you got to see them all the time, because you and I work out four times a week, five times a week. Yeah. Yeah. So that's up on the list for you guys. For sure. It would not be doing that if I didn't look forward to it. Yeah, so important. And John, can you talk a little bit about the results that you've gotten doing the body weight training and working out the doing the high frequency training that we do? Yeah, I'm happy with it. I I've gotten a lot stronger. I've also just in the last 45 days, I've dropped 13 pounds. That's a combination of the work we're doing and and nutrition, but it wouldn't be happening without the muscle development that we're working on. And I feel great. Energy is very, very high. And I feel like I move better than I used to. My flexibility, which was fairly good to start with, is getting better and better. And so it's it's great. It, it'll be fun to see uh, see where the journey takes us and how far we can go. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I look forward to training you because of that. You're you're motivated, you show up, you work hard, and you're, the results are speaking for themselves. It, it's definitely a partnership. I can't do the work for you and listen to the details of doing it just right. So, you know, I want to give you credit there as well, because it doesn't always work like that with some of the people that I've worked with over the years. So it's yeah. really great when that happens. So that's cool. And one more thing that I think is important is that you've got some injuries like I do. I, I've been very for, uh, front sharing my injuries, my shoulder issues, and my the three herniated discs I have in my neck right now. Can you talk a little bit about the injuries and the working out and how that's uh, played into what we do? Yeah. The biggest injury is my knees. I've got virtually no cartilage under either of my kneecaps. So I can't do anything that either grinds on my knees or that puts a lot of pressure on them, you know, like jumping, which kind of ended my basketball career and, and my skiing career as well. So we've had to work around that. But my intent is to do something, either a knee replacement or some stem cell cartilage replacement for my knees that will get them more functional. And to make that worthwhile, it's been important to build my lower body strength, which we've spent a lot of time doing as well. And then I've got some just kind of quirky stuff in my shoulders and my elbows that aren't really debilitating, but we have to work around those a little bit. So it's important that you're flexible and you have been flexible and basically figure out how to get the results that we're trying to achieve, even if it isn't always the most obvious exercise to do so. 
<laughs> I like how you put that at the end. Yeah, and I just wanted to paint a picture that while you do come in, you work hard, you're building muscle, you're getting stronger every week because the numbers show it. We track your progress. We track the amount of weight you lift when we do the deadlifts. But you're not the guy who's like showing up like Mr. CrossFit and just crushing everything that comes your way yet you're still getting great results. So if you're out there, you've got some injuries, you've got some tweaks in different places, there's ways to work around those things and still get great results. So that's why I was uh, part shameless plug, part inspiration to anybody who may be dealing with some nagging injuries like that. So yeah. John, I really appreciate your time and I'm really enjoying this interview. Could I ask you two questions that some of the listeners shared with me, and then sure. we'll wrap things up? You bet. Cool. So this one comes from Chris, and he said, in your opinion, what was more valuable to getting to the position where you stand today? Was it the hard work or the relationships? And he's got a follow-up question about the relationships. He said, and in what ways did you initiate relationships with those positions where you wanted to eventually be? I would generally not encourage people to do it the way I have. I have worked really, really hard, but I haven't done a great job at sustaining relationships. And it's actually something I think about fairly frequently. There, There are not a lot, but probably a dozen or two dozen people who I've encountered in my career who I should have done a better job of maintaining a close relationship with. And I just haven't. I, I can kind of psychoanalyze why I didn't. I think it goes back to how I grew up as a kid. But I think I would have done better faster had I done a better job of maintaining those relationships. So I would encourage people to be mindful of that and to be intentional about focusing on the people who they thought they could learn from, who could be useful to them, you know, not in a bad way, but in a positive way, and at the same time working hard. But that's advice based on what I didn't do more than advice based on what I did do. Yeah, and sometimes that's the best advice of all. I hear you. Um, yeah. This other question comes from Jackie, and she says, can you give some examples of how you were able to look at situations and come out with a lot of difficult situations and come out with a lesson? I see a lot of differences with people that could outline similar tasks. I think she, what she's asking is she sees people who go through similar situations. One comes out saying, oh, yeah, I learned from that experience, although it was hard. And then some people don't learn from it. They don't move on from it. It becomes like something, I guess, they that sticks with them. I'm doing my best here, Jackie. I guess we kind of covered that when you talked about your business investments that didn't go well, as well as your divorce during that tough economical time. Do you have anything to follow up with? Well, I think... It's two or three uh, seemingly incongruous things. I think the first one, and I learned this from an old boss of mine a long time ago, 20, 25 years ago, you have to develop the skill of 
looking from the outside in at a situation, whether it's something that you're in the midst of or whether you're not in the midst of it, if you can step back and look at it as though you're looking in a window and kind of observing all of the pieces and take the emotion out of it as much as possible, I think that's a very important thing to do. I think as you're figuring out the solutions, you need to take the individual and the person out of it. So I'll give you an example. From time to time, I've had businesses where we we had to reduce costs, and sometimes that would include letting some people go. And or on the other end of the spectrum, we're growing a business and we needed to add people to the company to grow it. In both of those cases, I think it's important to figure out what job it is you need to get done and then put the people in it as opposed to figuring out, you know, here's the people I have, what's the best I can do with with those people. So it's a little bit being less personal. And then the third thing is in some ways very contradictory to those two, and that is really trying to understand where the other person's coming from and listen as opposed to talk and and figure out both what they think and what motivates them as you're trying to figure out how to proceed. And I'm given that this is a long answer, but one thing I would refer to, and maybe you should have mentioned this before, it sounds a little bit corny, but one book that I still go back to about once a year is the is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah, great and book. It is a great book. And I have a copy that's dog-eared and has notes, and I've had it for 20 years. But what he says, one of the things I love is, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And I think that's a great, great way to live your life broadly, but specifically to conduct business as well. Wow. John, I, I know you said that was a long answer, but you took the time and, and really gave an awesome, awesome answer and a multifaceted approach to looking at these situations that come up in in entrepreneurship or in any tough situation, really. I like how you said, look at what needs to be done and find the person to do it. Don't just, because of your personal relationships, try to be more objective. And I think that yeah. is one of the things I, I try to promote as well. Just be more objective. Don't take things so personal and and really look at getting results. I mean, it just sounds like you're a guy who wants to get results, Yeah. right? And yes. not letting our personal baggage or personal relationships or feelings of obligations necessarily get in the way. So, yeah, no, that was a, a great answer. And, and John, this is coming up on an hour, and I'm so grateful for your time. It's always a pleasure getting together with you and, and training you, but we don't get to talk as much as we have today. So thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and most importantly, your time. My pleasure, Ted. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Um,